0: Well, good morning, Life Fellowship. Good to see you here this morning, turning your Bibles to Ruth chapter 1. We're going to be Ruth chapter 1. I know you've already heard it three times, but if you are parents or grandparent, have any interaction with children, the Screen Strong event this Saturday is going to be phenomenal. Make sure you invite friends or be here for it. Uh, It's going to be amazing. So I wanted to um, start with just... um, you know, a story that, that obviously is a little heavy, but, but Ruth is a heavy book. And, um, you know, going, when I went to school to be a pastor, you know, there's a lot of education you go through to make sure that you're prepared for the job. And, um, you, know, when, you know, I'm sure like when you went to school, there's a lot of classes you took that help prepare you for your career. And, and you know this, no matter how much great education you get, there's always going to be something that you feel like is lacking, something that you're not prepared for. And uh, you know, my schooling involved a lot of theology classes, making sure we understood the doctrines of of the Bible. We took a lot of Bible classes just to understand the story of the Bible, and we could exegete the text in Hebrew and Greek. and And uh, then there were classes on leadership and church administration. And so there was a lot of things that that they try to give you to prepare you for the role of being a pastor. But I can tell you, there was a moment in my in in my career as a pastor when I realized no amount of education can prepare you for certain events. It was in that moment when I was driving over to a family's house and to sit with a couple who had just lost a child in birth. Man, it was hard, and it was heavy, and it there was a lot of tears, and and there's just in those moments of sorrow and grief. Um, you know whether it's you, you're sitting with a family in a hospital room or or in their living room and they are processing the loss of something that that nothing can prepare you for that. And in those moments, your faith is tested. And, and in those moments, it's it's really there's a natural inclination when bad things happen to us to want to attach meaning to it. I'll never forget sitting across from that couple and just a lot of the questions of the mom was just the. Why, you know, why would God and why would this? And there's a natural inclination, no matter if you are a Christian or non-Christian, that when something bad or suffering or tragedy happens to you, that when, when that happens, you try to figure out the why, right? And for many people, it's, if there is no God, it just you have to accept, well, this is just random chance and just the way that things are. And, and be, but when you are a Christian and you believe that there's this all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God, and then you go through suffering and then you go through tragedy, there's something about those moments that you start questioning, God, what are you doing? God, where are you? and maybe some of the judgments that you make are are almost anti what you've been taught. We just sang these beautiful songs this morning that, you know, I, you know, you anchor me to the ground and my my faith is firm and steadfast. We've seen these things, but has there not been times in your life when your faith hasn't been steadfast? When you question the very god you worship? It's natural. It's real. And that's exactly what we see in the text this morning. And one of the things that we have been sharing about the themes in the book of Ruth is this theme of providence. And you're gonna see this theme providence throughout, the, especially the beginning part of the story of Ruth. And we defined providence two weeks ago as God is working through ordinary means and through ordinary people. That's what God does. And we're gonna see God do some, some working here, but in the moment, we gotta remember that that Naomi has just lost. Remember, we just looked at this last week. Naomi has just lost her husband and her two sons, and she is grieving. There's a lot of the theology of grief in this passage that is really important for us to learn because all of us will grieve at some point in our lives, whether it's grieving death or grieving loss of friendship, loss of relationships, um, you know, career changes. There, there are so many different levels and layers of grief. And so Naomi is going through something very deeply emotional right now, and I am sure when as we read this text, there's going to be something that comes across in her verbiage and her understanding that feels like God is not there, and at worst that God is against her. And maybe you felt like that before. And one of the things we've got to remember, and in this story is going to be a perfect illustration of this, is that God, even when God is silent, God is working. I'm going to say that again. Many times when God is silent, he's still working. Now, I, I have discovered in, in my own marriage, I've discovered this in the marriage of both of my brothers. We've married wives like this. Uh, my brother-in-law has experienced this with me. There's always someone in the marriage relationship that doesn't carry their phone with them. Is, is, am, I, am I right on that? All right, so, so how many of you, we're just gonna raise hands. How many of you are the, the person in your family that always has the phone on you? Raise your hands, loud, okay. Now, raise your hand to the person that does, like, I don't really care, just whenever I feel like it. All right, all right. You see those, you people make life really hard for us, okay? (laughs) Because, man, if I, if I, there's something I need information for, and I'll call my wife, hey, I've got to make a decision, I call, and she's like, ring, 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 and I'm like, where I'm doing the find my iPhone beeping, her like, I'm just, because I need to talk to my wife about something. And my wife is just one of these people, like, I'm not going to carry a phone around with me my whole life. (laughs) If I want to talk to someone, I'll pick up my phone. And some of you are like, amen. I'm not going to be you know, ball and chain to my phone. But, but, but many times, that's how we feel about God. Right? We, we're, we're saying, God, I need you right now. God, I need you to show up, especially when things are happening in our lives that we can't find meaning to. We're in the middle of the morning, the middle of the tragedy. God, where are you? And it's in those times that we have to to grow in our faith to believe that God is still working. If there's one thing that that the story in Ruth teaches us, is that God is always working in us, for us, and sometimes in spite of us. God is working in us, for us, and in spite of us. That just because God is silent doesn't mean that God's not there. Just because he's silent doesn't mean that God is not working. And so we're going to read this this passage in Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, we're going to start in verse 6. Remember the first five verses were basically the beginning of the story of Ruth and Elimelech with their two young boys going into the country of Moab because there's a famine in the land. And in that land, tragedy strikes. And Naomi loses both her husband and her two sons, and she's left with these two To uh, her two daughters in law. And we're gonna pick up the story now in verse six. Let's just read this. It says, Then she arose with her daughters in law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So let me just stop right there. She's heard, she's working in the fields with her daughters in law. Again, we have to remember in the society and culture back then that if you did not have a male to provide for you, you were left. To glean the fields for yourself, it was often a very harsh, a very troubled life. There was no social welfare um, that, that was around back then. It, it, it's not like women could start their own careers doing things. It was it was a very different kind of culture and society. And so, when they're in the fields, they hear God has visited His people. Now, that's a really interesting word, visited. Many times when you see that word, God visiting His people. It can either be positive or negative, depending on what's going on with the people of Israel. If the people of Israel were obedient and and cried out to God, then God would show up. When God visited, there would be blessings. If the children of Israel were were disobedient and rebellious against God, when God visited them, there would be punishment. It's kind of like when you are a mom and dad and you come home to your kids and it's like, this is either going to be good or bad. right? There are times when you come home and the house is a mess and you're like, kids, what are you doing? Or there's times everything's good. Oh, yeah. So, but when God visits, this shows the sign of authority. He's visiting his people, and he's giving them his blessing. And so Naomi hears about this. They, they went away from famine. They hear that God's visited. God's actively working. Where? In Israel. And she's like, I got to go back. And so she leaves with her daughters-in-law. Verse 7, so she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed both of them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. For the sake, for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. what we're gonna read in this, what we've just read, and what we're reading in this passage are three conversations between Naomi and her daughters-in-law, Orpa and Ruth. And we see this, this this sojourn back into the land of Judah. Back into the promised land of God. Namely, he's returning to Israel. And along the way, she stops and she realizes she's, she doesn't have any hope. She's going back to a land, but she knows she's going to have to glean the fields in her old age. And she's gonna, There's no hope for, for a future. There's no hope for a family. There's no hope for provision. She's probably going back to live in poverty and destitution. And she looks at these two young women behind her with their, all their lives ahead of them, with a future ahead of them. And she stops and says, listen. May the Lord deal kindly with you. Go back. She uses verbiage here. Go back to your mother's house. You know, go back to find a She's like, I want you to have a family. If you follow me to where I'm going, there's no guarantee that you'll find what you're looking for. I don't have any hope. You still have hope. Go back. And what we see in this first conversation, what is revealed to us is that there is a deep love and care and bond between these three women. You know, it's not like it's it's not like Naomi was like, "Oh, my daughters-in-law, they are the worst. Go back home." That wasn't it. She genuinely loves them and cares for them. And we know, look what the, the two daughters did. It says, end of verse 9, Then she kissed them and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. They're like, no, Naomi. You know, they, they were not looking. It's not like they were following her like, oh, man, I can't believe we got to go back with this old bag and, you know, take care of her. They were not. They, they wept when she brought this idea of them leaving. There was a. There was a deep emotional bond. They had been through the loss of family members. They had been through much. There was a genuine, loving bond between these three women. But Naomi could not bear to think that she was dragging them down to be with her in a hopeless situation. And she says, you're released. Go. So the the first conversation reveals this love that Naomi and Ruth and Orpah have for one another. The second conversation reveals something different. The second conversation reveals Naomi's pain, in Naomi's perspective, because they, 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 you know, they they lift up their voices, they weep, and they continue on with her, and then she stops again. She's like, "No, listen, you don't understand." I, you might be thinking, well, Naomi's going to go back and start her own family again. No, 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 you, that, that's, that's impossible. I am an old woman. I'm not going to have sons. Are you going to wait around for 15, 16 years for you to, to have a husband for me? It's like, you're not, you're not thinking clearly. I can tell you there's no hope. There's no future. If you stay with me, go back to your people. And then she says something here. Look at verse, look at verse 13, the middle of verse 13. No, my daughters. For it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Whoa. So what we see here in, in Naomi, we don't, again, we're not sure where the timeline is with all of these things of when they happened, but Naomi says something profound here. Why? Here's some things, one of the things I've always taught you when I've t- you know, when we preach on Sunday mornings. Ask the Bible questions. Ask the Bible questions. Why? Would Naomi say, the hand of the Lord has come against me? Has, has the narrator made that point at all? No, but she feels that. Why does Naomi believe that God is working against her? That the loss of her husband and her two sons is in some way a punishment from God? Well, I believe there, there's some clues that we can, we can say, because normally you don't think God is against you unless you've done something bad, right? That makes sense. One of the things that's interesting when you study um, th- this passage, if you look in the first few verses again, it says there is a man from Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab because there was a famine. Now, there are some extra biblical resources out there. There is a Jewish uh, tradition book called the Talmud. and ta- The Talmud is a collection of, of commentaries that's been passed down for centuries about the Hebrew Scriptures. A lot of rabbis and it's just these oral traditions. And one of the things that the now doesn't mean that they're inspired doesn't mean this is necessarily all true, but they kind of give some broader context to things that are happening in in the Bible. And one of the things that the Talmud teaches is that Elimelech, who was the patriarch with Naomi, when the famine hit Bethlehem, he was a very wealthy man. We can deduce that he was a wealthy man because. Boaz, his nephew in the story, is also a wealthy man and has lots of fields and lots of servants. And Elimelech, as a wealthy man, when famine hits and he realizes, I've got a big field, I've got a lot of grain, and I don't want a lot of poor people knocking on my door every day asking me for food and for money. And so in order to escape the pressure of constantly giving stuff away, he goes to Moab. And so we see here, it says he went to sojourn in the country of Moab. So what that means, sojourn. That's like we're coming to visit. We're going to stay here for a little bit. But then when you get down into the end of verse uh, two, it says that they remained in the country of Moab. So, so what you have here is we're just gonna. You see a series of compromises with Naomi and Elimelech. Hey, we don't want to really be involved in trying to help people out who are poor. Let's get out of here. Let's take care of ourselves. Let's go to Moab. Even though it's a foreign country, they serve a false god. These are people who are not friendly to our faith, our religion, our, our way of life. We're going to get away. And we're just going to stay there for a little bit. And then instead of sojourning, they set down roots. And not only do they set down roots, they, start interme- they give their sons in marriage to Moabite women, which was against God's law. And so what you see end up happening with this story in the first part is these series of compromises that Elimelech and Naomi make. And Naomi now is looking at this and saying, God is against me. We made all these decisions. We made some bad choices. And now I'm I'm reaping what we've sown. And she's looking at the death of her husband and her two sons as God's judgment, God's punishment. You know, we see this elsewhere in the scripture in the story of Joseph with his brothers. This idea of, of doing something bad in the past where all of a sudden it's, it, it comes back to haunt them. Remember Joseph's 10 older brothers, they hated Joseph because he was the favorite son of, his dad, of their dad. And so one day out in the field, they get so sick and tired of Joseph and his attitude and his pride and his arrogance and the relationship that he has with his dad that they, they want to kill him. But instead of killing him, they throw him in a pit, and then they, they sell him in to be a slave. And, and this happens you know, decades later. And then, then there's a famine that hits the land, and they go to Egypt. And Joseph has gone from prisoner in Egypt to second in command. God's hand is upon him. And when Joseph's brothers come to see him decades later, they see him, but they do not recognize him. And what happens is um, they, Joseph starts treat, 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 treating them harshly. Why is he doing that? Because he's trying to test, are they still the same guys as they were that threw me in the pit? And in the midst of this treating harshly, the brothers start arguing. You can read this in Genesis 42, and they're like, this is is happening because of what we did to our brother Joseph, and they start fighting each other. You see, when you live in a way that's anti, that goes against God's word, and against God's laws, and against God's ways, when something happens to you in a negative way, you will be tempted to think, God's punishing me. God's, God's out to get me. You know, again, the main point that I want to leave you with is don't judge God's work until the end of the story. Don't judge God's work until the end of the story. Naomi was judging God in this moment saying, God is punishing me. And, and I, again, I want to, again, the narrator never says that's what's happening. But here's here's another question I want to ask you: What would have happened? What would have happened if Elimelech, Melon, and Kilion had never died? What do you think would have happened to their family? Well, if, if here, the chances are, again, if you're looking at the series of compromises that they made, chances are they would have never gone back to to Israel. The chances of them having children in Moab, raising kids that thought like Moabites. And even though they might have had some level of worship of Yahweh, being in that land, their family would have been absorbed into the nation and the culture and the traditions and the, the faith of Moab serving a false God. And they would have been erased from, from memory of being in the people of God. See, if, if Elimelech and Melon and Kilion had never died, Naomi never returns to Israel. And if Naomi never returns to Israel, Ruth never goes with her. And if Ruth never goes with her, Ruth never comes to faith in Yahweh. And if Ruth never comes to faith in Yahweh, she never meets Boaz. And if she doesn't meet Boaz, then she doesn't marry Boaz. And if she doesn't marry Boaz, she doesn't eventually have, in her lineage, David the king. And here's the question that I have. Is is this God's judgment on Naomi? Or is it God's mercy on Naomi? See, God in his mercy, I believe, sometimes will do things, even to the extreme, to draw us out of our our cycle of rebellion, and I'm doing things my own way, to draw us back into him so there's a greater good that he's doing. You know, we see right here in this moment that Naomi is making a judgment. And and this is, let me just kind of put a parenthesis around this. When you are in the middle of mourning, when you're in the middle of that tragedy, when you're in the middle of the emotions, Don't try to add, you know, this is why this is happening. It's not going to help you. And and let me just say this: if you're around people that are suffering, if you're around people that are suffering through tragedy and mourning through something, don't you be the one that's like, well, here's the maybe God is doing this in your life. You'll just make things worse. You know, one of the things we've got to learn is allow God the time to have his work. Don't judge God's work until it's done until the end of the story, because what you see here in Ruth is you see Ruth with a woman who's, she's bitter. She's angry. She's wrestled with God, and she's saying, God is against me. But towards the end of the story, what could she say? God is for me. And in the middle of all this, we've got to see that God can work something that is tragic into a greater good that is a sign of his mercy and goodness. You know, I I don't know of any parent that, that, when they have a wayward son or wayward daughter, would not pray this, God, do whatever it takes to reach my child. There's not a parent I, I've ever had a conversation with that has said, God, if, it, if you have to take my life in order to reach my son or daughter, do it. And God, God in this moment, understands I've take, I've got to take some lives. I've got to allow these lives to be gone. So there's something else good can come out of this. Because if I don't intervene right now, this family will be lost to Moab and to the God of, gods of Moab forever. And sometimes God does drastic things to grab our attention, to rescue us out of the pit and out of fire of destruction saying, there's a better good I have for you. That feels like judgment, but it's really God's mercy. Are you able to recognize that? Don't make judgments on what God is doing until the end. That's important for us to remember. Well, there, there's a second thing that we've got to remember because God, if God is always working in us, for us, and in spite of us, that leads us to the third conversation. The first conversation, Naomi is showing the love and the relationship they have in, in, amongst these two, these two women. The second conversation reveals Naomi's pain. And when we look at the end of this We see again this this response. Verse 14, Then they lifted up their voices and wept. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And verse 15, And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. Second point is this, don't underestimate how God works to accomplish his good. Don't underestimate... How God works to accomplish his good. Just like we shouldn't judge God and his work before it's the end, don't underestimate what God is doing now to accomplish something good. What we see here, let's let's focus on Naomi first, because it's Naomi and Ruth. Orpah goes back. She, She understands the logic. See, Orpah really makes the logical, reasonable choice here. She realizes, you know what, Naomi, you're right. There is no future for me with you. I'm going to go back to my people and my gods. And what you see here in Naomi, and this, this is really fascinating. Naomi is, gives the worst evangelistic proposal to someone in the history of the Bible. Do you realize that? Ruth's still holding on to her, clings to her. And, and she's like, go back to your people and your gods. She tells Ruth, this God that I'm worshiping, he's against me. And Ruth's like, I want that God. <laughs> what is going on here? There's, there's something here that should give every single one of us hope in God's work. God many times works in spite of our actions. And yeah, we, we, things might be going sideways in our lives. Things might to be working out the way we thought they would or we hope they would. It doesn't mean that God is silent. It doesn't mean that God has stopped working in you, for you, and in spite of you. And what we see here is a woman who tells her daughter-in-law, this God that I worship, he's actually working against me. I mean, he's against me. And you need to go back to your people and your gods. And Ruth says, no, I want to go with you and I want to worship this God. This should give us hope that no matter what, we cannot mess up God's plan. You can't. God will work his work in people's lives to produce his good, and that should give every single one of us a sense of faith and hope that we need in these moments. I remember years ago, I've shared stories about the, the church I planted back in 2006, and and the first three years of that journey were very difficult. They were very challenging. A lot of problems. And I remember it was three. After three years, we just saw, started seeing God do some amazing things in our church. People getting saved, and church starting to grow. And and it was it was all God's work. I mean, I can't take any credit for it. And the re- I don't just say that, kind of like, oh, that's the churchy thing to say. The reason I say that is because a few years after the church started doing well, someone gave me this book. I was in the church planting world, and we were planting churches, and so that was kind of the world I was in. And and I came across this book called um, Church Planting Landmines, the 10 biggest mistakes that church planters make make to, um, to destroy their church. Now, this is a book you should read before you plant a church. Okay, that's really important. And I remember reading this book. And I had committed eight of the ten mistakes that church planters make. Eight. I mean, it was like I was going for the punch card. And, and I can testify as I'm reading this book. I'm like, oh, I did that. Oh, I did that. God, I mean, in every single landmine I stepped on, it was like God was there. To like, God's like, that's all right. We'll put it back together. It was all God. God was the one that made this church go. He's the one that made the church grow. He's the one that did. I mean, I can honestly say I did everything possible to screw this church up, and God still worked. You can do every, you can make all the mistakes in the world as a parent, God can still work. We should have hope. You can make all the mistakes. Like, I didn't say the right thing in this right one moment when someone asked me, Oh, God, and oh, now forever they're going to be lost to the abyss of hell. Like, no. Don't think like that. God is working. And Naomi gives, again, she's the worst evangelist in the history of the Bible. And yet she's successful in reaching her daughter-in-law. And you know why? Because God was working in Ruth's heart. I think many times we put way too much hope and way too much power and authority in what we do. And we do not put enough hope and authority, and faith, and power, and what God does. And that is a fundamental thing that we are confronted with, especially when things go wrong, especially when tragedy strikes, especially when the emotions of suffering take over. We are tempted, again, to take a hold of the wheel and say, God, let me take it from here. And so, so we see we see Naomi do everything possible to turn Ruth away, and yet Ruth still follows her, follows Yahweh. So let's, let's look at Ruth for a moment, because what we see in Ruth is we see a woman who, who just does this amazing thing. She, she is It says she clung to her in verse 14. Why? Now that's important, that word clung. It's a very unique word. It's a word used to describe, actually the first mention of this word cling is the word that we see in the book of Genesis when God says a man shall leave his mother and father, and cling to his spouse, cling to his wife. It's this, it's this ultimate bond of unity that, that a husband and wife are supposed to have. That's the word that's used when she says he, she clung to her. It wasn't just this, I'm holding on to you physically. It's like, no, we, we are we are one. I'm, I'm never going to let you go. And Ruth does the extraordinary. If Orpah did the sensible and reasonable thing, Ruth did the extraordinary an unexpected thing. She basically says, "And this is a beautiful statement. It's one of the most beautiful statements of commitment in the entire Bible. This statement is so beautiful. Many times in weddings, people read these, this statement. And and but as beautiful as it is, let's not let's not paint a rose-colored picture here. She doesn't know what's in the future." In fact, what she is signing up for when she says, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. When she says that, what she is saying is, I'm signing up to live a life of poverty and destitution and hardship and suffering, Naomi, because I want to be with you. This Ruth wasn't thinking, how can I say the most flowery, beautiful thing right now? To make Naomi feel better. That's not what she was thinking. She was signing up. This is is what we call adventurous faith. This is abnormal. This is the faith that says, I don't even know what's beyond here, but I know this. I want to be with you, and I want to be with your God. No matter what happens. There's a a very famous letter that that was was written about 200 years ago, over 200 years ago. One of my favorite books uh, that I've read Biographies is called "To the Golden Shore." It's a story. Uh, it's a biography of Adonijah Judson. Adonijah Judson is one of the first missionaries to ever leave the shores of the United States, and and really his life, his his story, along with William Carey, helped propel the modern missions movement. And so, Adonijah Judson, the story of in this book, um, he grew up in the church. Fell away, kind of fell into some intellectualism, deism, and just re- rejected all the supernatural things in the Bible. And yet, then God met him and radically saved him. And as he was felt called by God to go to the heathen in South Asia, he he wanted to be married, and so he starts courting this young woman by the name of Anne Hasseltine. And he asked Anne, "Would you would you want to?" I mean, they didn't really um, date during those days. It was kind of like, "Hey, do you want to marry me?" That was basically the conversation that they had. She, so he asked, he asked if she would consider being his wife, and um, she waits a month and then tells him, hey, if you want to do this the right way, you're going to have to ask my father. And so uh, Adonai Judson wrote a letter to her father, and here is a portion of this letter. It says, I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world. Whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of a missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all of this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? For the sake of perishing, immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the sake of the glory of God, can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness, brightened with the acclamations of praise which shall rebound to her Savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? How many dads want to say yes to that? Usually I'd say, I'm going to do my best this, this is a raw, honest declaration of, I want to be with your daughter. But being with her means she will suffer. And she did. When Ruth makes this commitment to God and to Naomi, she's saying, I don't know what's on the other side. But I'm trusting, you just said, may the kindness, may the chesed of the Lord be with you. In the very beginning, the very first conversation, you brought up this idea of the Lord being loving and kind to me. I'm just telling you, I want that God with you. Yeah, I want that God, but I, I'm not going back to my people. I don't know what the future holds. But I'm willing to suffer the persecution and hardship and suffering that, that comes from it, because I know in your land suffering with the one true God is better than with comfort in a family with all of my gods. This this statement is a step statement for us, because you know here's here's what you got to remember: Ruth and Ruth Orpa, they when they came into the family of Elimelech, they probably had to give lip service to some version of, well, you know, if you're going to be a part of our family, you're going to have to, uh, you know, worship our gods. And they probably gave some mental assent and verbal statement of saying, yeah, we'll do it. But there came a moment in, this, in Ruth's life where God came down and the Spirit of God working inside of her said, no, this is real for me. It became more than just something formal. It became personal. This, this is a challenge for, all, for every single person that's grown up in the church, grown up in a Christian home, grown up going like this is just a part of what I do. I grew up in a Christian home. I grew up Baptist. I grew up Presbyterian. I grew up this, and now I'm going through life. And, but there comes a moment for every single one of us. I don't care where you were baptized or how you were baptized as a child. I don't care what happened to you. There comes a moment in every person's life where you have to say, God, you are my God. Jesus, you are my Savior. What you did on the cross for the world, I can understand it in a general sense. But God, I'm now receiving the fullness of what Jesus you have done for me for myself. That is what is needed for every single person. Ruth puts on display what genuine, adventurous faith looks like. And here's the good news. She does it in the face of an evangelist that botched the whole thing. And this shows us the greatness of our God. Don't underestimate what God can do. A few weeks ago when we were having our, our prayer service, it was, a, again, a powerful time. Um, but towards the end of that, we had some uh, a time where we wrote down the names of, I was challenging everyone to, to pray boldly and have a bold prayer and then to pray for lost people. And we asked everyone in our church to come up to these crosses up here, to that cross over there, and write sticky notes of someone that they want to see come to know the Lord Jesus. And you can see some of the pictures here. 477 names were given on these crosses that night. 477 names. Here they are on the screen. I wanted you to see these names. These are all the names that you, as as a church, we wrote down and put on these crosses. Every single one of these names are names of people that are close to us but far from God. These are names that are very much like, have the story of Ruth. You know, a, a foreign people. For, you know, they, they're not worshiping the God. They're not worshiping Jesus. And they need someone to tell them the good news. And I think for many of us, we, we put this pressure on ourselves to, be, to, to make it like, I've got to do everything perfectly. I've got to make sure. And so we're, we're paralyzed by analysis and we're paralyzed by Perfection. I want you to know these names that are on this that you're seeing on this on this board are not going to come to know Jesus Christ because we evangelize perfectly. That's not going to happen because no one does it. Even if you gave the best, perfect, most beautiful, elaborate presentation of the gospel, at the end of the day, when people's lives are changed, it's a result of the Spirit of God working in them. It's that. And, and you, it's not up to you. All you've got to do is be faithful to say, God, you've put these people in my life. Do I lo- Will I love them the way you love them? And I'm not going to do it perfectly. If, if this story gives any of us hope, it should give us the hope that I can be the worst evangelist in the world and God will have his will done in their lives. Man, that is encouraging. That is something f- for us that I think should give us Just an incredible amount of joy. You know what my hope is? My hope is that some of these names are on this list will be here this Easter. I hope some of these names on this list this year will no longer be on this list next year. And it's not because we're going to do everything right. It's because we serve a God who's always working. We serve a God who's working in us, for us, and in spite of us. Where's your faith this morning? Where where's your how much does your faith believe that that people, people that that we say, man, these are people are close to me but far from God? Where's my faith in God? I believe you're gonna do something in their life this year. You know, I, I think one of the hardest things many times is when we don't see progress happen, when we expect progress to happen in the way it is. I again I don't know what was going on all in Ruth's and Naomi's heart and life. I don't know how much Ruth or Naomi had seen Ruth and how much she really expressed interest in faith. But there came a moment where Ruth had to make a decision: go back to my people, my gods, or follow Naomi to worship her God. And she made a, a life-changing, world-shattering choice. And man, that's, that's what happened when God moves. That's what happened when God moves. Don't, even when God is silent, when, even when you're in the middle of the emotions of, God, I feel like you're against me. Don't ever forget that God loves you. And God is working. And he's working in you and for you and in spite of you. Hold on to that today. A few questions and then we're done. Number one. What could actually be God's mercy towards you that you believe is God's judgment against you? Maybe you feel like, man, the God is against me. There's all these things that God is doing, and it feels like it's God's judgment. And maybe it's not God's judgment. It's actually God's mercy. And what we need is we need the glasses to see God's God's hand of providence. And maybe maybe the first step we're not able to say, God, it's your mercy and your goodness now. Maybe we just need to take a step back and say, God, I, I know you're not against me. Right? I know that you're working something for good. And maybe it's just the first step is I'm, I'm not going to say it's something bad before I can say it's something good, but I'm just going to pull back my judgment before the end of the story. And we need the patience to wait for God to write the end of the story. Second question is this. Are you putting too much hope in your actions to produce God's good? I talked about this two weeks ago. Many times we don't like how things are going, and we try to wrestle control away from God instead of trusting in him to work his will out in his own timing and in his own way. And we put way too much hope into our strength and our abilities. Third question, are we putting too little hope in God to produce good? Let's let's take our hope away from us and what we can accomplish, and let's put our hope in God this morning. Let's put our hope in him. You know, I, I shared right there at the end, a decision that Ruth made. And my question to you is, is that you? If you've never made the personal decision to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, maybe you've grown up around church and around religion and around a denomination your entire life, but you've never made the personal choice for yourself. You've never made this kind of commitment to God, saying, God, I'm yours. If you've never done that, I want to invite you to do that this morning. And you can do that. Whether you want to do this at the end of the service, we have a prayer team out in the lobby. You go meet them. They love to pray with you, talk with you, and help you in any way, answer any questions you might have. But don't leave here today if God is just a general, you know, Jesus and God are just this general understanding in your life, but they're not personal to you. Don't leave here today without doing that. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. You know, this is a sermon that maybe it's it's not what you necessarily need right now maybe it's a you know maybe things in life are going well but this is one of these lessons these sermons that you need to keep with you you need to hold on to because there's going to be a moment when your faith is tested like Naomi's it's going to be tested when God feels silent but maybe that's where you are right now maybe you are feeling the sense of God I just you're not there you're not picking up on the other end and it just feels like you're absent and you're silent, and you're not doing anything. And what I'm asking you to do right now in this this moment is to realign your faith to the reality of a God who works, who works in unexpected ways and does unforeseen things in his timing and in many times in spite of us. Would you realign your faith this morning and give him that? Father, I pray as we leave here this morning that, God, you would help us to remember that you are there, that you're here, that, God, you haven't abandoned us, you haven't taken your hand off us, that, Lord, even as you worked in the life of this woman, Ruth, in the most unexpected way, that, God, you would work in us, work for us, and in spite of us. We love you so much, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.